0: One of the privileges I have every Lord's Day is to sit where I sit as we worship together in song. And I don't know what it was particular to this morning, but there were children singing somewhere and I could hear them very clearly. And what a joy that is to hear children sing praises to the Lord. I don't hear that every Sunday. So wherever you're sitting Kids, sit there next week, okay? Uh, and let's keep this up. What a joy it is to hear you sing praises to the Lord. We're looking at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 9 this morning. I will try to honor the wishes of my daughter who said to me after the last sermon, Daddy, you preached long today. She has no concept of time, but it was long enough, I guess, so let's look at the t- in the time we have in verses 7 through 9. Peter writes this to these early Christians, it, the end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Father, help us now as we understand what Peter was writing. We desire to understand more. and Father, like these early Christians, we are starting to see in our day and our age That the end really is near. Whether you return, Lord, or whether you take us home through the natural events of a fallen world and we die of natural causes or whatever it is, Lord, that you have determined for us, we ask that you would be glorified in our lives. And we know that best happens as you shape us and you mold us by the power of your Word. So Holy Spirit, come, take the Word which you have inspired Peter to write just as fresh and alive today as they were the day they were written. And transfer them to our minds that we would understand our hearts that we would love what you love and to our will that we would do what you would have us to do. And we trust you to do this because we know that you love us. We know that you care for us and you, we know that you desire to make us like the one whom you came to testify of, and that is our lovely Lord Jesus Christ. So make us like Jesus through your word today, Father, Son, and Spirit. We pray for your glory. Amen. Peter is writing, as we've said so many times, to a group of people who are living in a greatly destabilized scenario that life for them has turned upside down, not proverbially, but really They are going through things they never dreamed they would go through. They are at home, living where they've always lived, and yet everything around them has changed. And we know how unsettling, don't we, that feeling can be. We've experienced more of that in the last year than uh, our grandparents or our great-grandparents ever could have imagined experiencing everything changing so rapidly. And one of the questions that we ask ourselves And that we ask of one another is this, what do we do? What do we do? In the face of all the the upheaval, what do we do? What's next? Where do we go from here? And that's a legitimate question. Combat leaders are fond of saying that the first casualty of any engagement is the plan. The first thing to go up in smoke is what you thought you were going to do. And so in that case, you must observe, you must adapt and formulate a new plan, and then you must move forward according to the new plan as facts on the ground dictate. We do that in everyday life. Sometimes innately, sometimes naturally, sometimes without giving it great thought, and other times we have to stop and think about it. We're asked questions like this, aren't we hypotheticals all the time? What would you do if X, Y, or Z happens? Questions that penetrate a little deeper that go like this. What would you do if you knew this was your last week on earth? What would you do if you knew this was the last hour of your earthly life? It's part of living in the reality of a Fallen world, things go sideways. Things happen that we had not planned on happening. And we have to observe, we have to adapt, and we have to move forward according to the Word of God. But at some point, brothers and sisters, if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest with each other, we have to admit this. At some point in our life, our plans will change. Our life will get turned upside down. Things will go sideways. It's just part of the reality of life in a fallen world, because of sin. And Peter is writing to people who know that, they understand that, it's part of their DNA, it's part of their daily experience. And so as Peter is writing to these people in great care for them, based on that reality, we must answer that question. What is that thing that we must do? What would you do if you knew this was the last week of your life, the last day of your life, the last hour of your life? And the question before us this morning is, what is that thing? What do we do? How do we live? That's how Francis Schaeffer asked the question so many years ago. How then shall we live? Given the reality of life on the ground And I want to submit to you this morning from the text as we look at it together that the answer to that question that what is that thing that we should do is not found in doing things that are tied to this world. Not common sense things that everybody should know to do, but but in a spiritual sense, things that believers should know to do and be informed as to how to do that. We need to be making preparations. So that we say when when life goes sideways, when things become difficult, we, we don't panic, we don't, we don't flee out of a sense of despair. We look, we observe, we adapt according to the Word of God and we overcome what is in front of us. We're prepared. But we can't do that unless we are prepared. You know, people believe in being prepared. You hear the little radio ads that come on and say, Do you have enough food to last 24 to 48 hours in the event of a natural disaster? Do you have a plan where you would meet? Even the state of Texas has demonstrated even this very weekend that they so much believe in being prepared that they are giving you a tax holiday for certain items that you purchased between yesterday and today. Did you know that? You can go to Lowe's. They've got a big sign. Here's what you can buy and not pay taxes on today. Why? Because they believe that their citizens need to be prepared. God believes that, that we as children, yes, physical preparation is one thing, but spiritual preparation is so much more vital. And so 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, and in the weeks to come, and verses that follow tell us how it is that we are to plan. Christian what is your plan how do you plan to live in the world that you find yourself in today if you haven't noticed things have been going sideways since the fall of Adam and Eve into sin and they continue to do so today and so Peter as he now begins to shift and to give us practical advice useful advice for immediate use no assembly required if you will gives us one reality that is followed then by a list of resolutions that you and I should make in the form of commands that follow the one reality. And look at the reality that he gives us this morning. And the reality is this, if you're taking notes, number one, it is the reality of time drawn down. Time drawn down. He says this just very bluntly and very Openly, the end of all things is near. The end of all things is near. Brothers and sisters, that is true. That is true, not because 2020 was last year and 2021 is this year. The end of all things is near. The day that you were born, the end of all things is near. If you live out a full life, that is a very short span of time when you begin to think about it. And ever since Jesus was risen and ascended, the end of all time has been near. We read that throughout the New Testament. But when you stop to think as a Christian, through a Christian lens, there is a great clarity in what Peter is saying to us here. Now, I know that's hard. One of the things our society is, and culture is not good at is stopping to think. We're so busy, aren't we? And even when we're not busy, we're saturated with media, with entertainment, with other things. Or we are just so tired from being so busy, when we do stop, we can't think. Some of you know what that's like. You you, you go, you go, you go, and you sit down and you have a moment where you could start to think about some things and you just find yourself 30 minutes later staring at a wall. You're tired. It's hard. So Peter is giving us great clarity here by calling us to think. And and it's bewildering to me, and perhaps it is to you as well, that, that so many Christians can Read Peter's letter and not see what he's saying in verse 7. The end of all things is near. This This is the first casualty, the plans that you had for your life that feel as if life is going to go on forever. Just hit the fan. It's not. The end of all things is near. It isn't because we can't see this, it's because we don't see this. And we don't see this because so many other things cloud our vision and cloud our minds. Yet the reality remains the same. Peter pointedly states something that Francis Schaeffer would say is truly true. The end of all things is near. It's obvious. Therefore, don't deny it with your life, Christian. Live as though the end is near. Live as though this is the last hour of your life. Some of you have read, no doubt, Jonathan Edwards' 70 resolutions that he wrote as a teenage young man. And one of his resolutions was simply this, resolved. That's how he started all 70 of them. Resolved. Now imagine a teenager writing this today. Imagine an adult writing this today. Resolved not to do anything that I would not do were it not the last hour of my life. You see, he understood, he grasped the truth that the end of all things is near. Calvin wrote in his commentary on this verse that though the faithful hear that their felicity or their happiness is elsewhere other than in this world, yet as they think that they should live long, this false thought renders them careless and even slothful so that they direct not their thoughts to the kingdom of God. Well, he nails it, doesn't he? They think their happiness is somewhere else than this world. And yet they think that they're going to live so long that in that false thought of living so long and life going on so tranquil for so long, they become careless and even slothful so that they begin to think less and less of the kingdom of God. He says, hence the apostle, meaning Peter, writing this verse, that he might rouse them from this drowsiness of the flesh, reminds them that the end of all things was nigh, by which he intimates that we ought not to sit still in the world from which we must soon remove. Brothers and sisters, we will soon be removed from this world, and we must not sit idly by while we are here. We must make preparations. And Peter will prepare us for those. The world rejects such a notion that the end of all things is near. I believe that that is because the world by conscience, according to Romans chapter 1, the world knows there is judgment for sin. I believe that. And that is why they do all they can to silence the testimony and the witness of Scripture. Whether overtly in preaching or by in nature itself. You want to eliminate anything that pricks the conscience so that you are not reminded of a notion of righteousness, of sin, and of judgment to come. Secondly, they reject it because they have no desire at all to be reconciled to a holy God. And neither did any of us, quite frankly. We loved our sin. And that's why... Grace and salvation is such an amazing thing that it it invades where it is not wanted. Remember what Paul wrote in Romans 5.8, while we were at enmity with God, God demonstrated His love to us. While we were rebels against God, while we did not desire God, God intervenes in our life. And aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that God didn't wait until you you know, cleaned up your life and decided you wanted Him? Aren't you thankful that He stepped in? Brought conviction of sin? Brought a knowledge of righteousness that is in Christ? Convicted you? Granted you faith that you might believe? Yet the world rejects that. They have no desire to hear that the end of all things is near and that the time to give an account to God is also near. Why? Why? They don't want judgment, nor do they want reconciliation. They want nothing to do with God. Yet the reality is that it's coming. But we need to remember this, that as Peter writes this, regardless of what the world says, verse 7, really the entire epistle is not meant for the world. This is a letter to Christians. This is a letter to you and I this morning. It's Peter's plea, it's, As if Peter were sitting before us this morning, shaking us, saying, Christian, wake up! Christ is almost here! The end of all things is near. Let me ask you a question. Christian, what in your daily life dulls that sense that Christ is near? What in your life causes you to forget day by day that the end of all things is near? That your joyous meeting with your Savior is near. And and I'm not just asking this rhetorically. I want you to think about that question. What, What dulls you? What distracts you? What keeps you so busy that you cannot think about this truth? That Peter says, Christian, wake up. The end of all things is near. And you need to take stock of your life. Because it is critically important. What distracts you? What what causes you to think of other things or not care to think about this one thing? What diverts your mind from the reality of verse 7? And thus keeps you from preparing to that end. Let me read to you again from Calvin. He says this, "For For we promise almost all of us An eternity to ourselves in this world. At least the end never comes out in our mind. All of us, innately, because of sin, we just convince ourselves it's all going to be okay. It's just going to keep going on as it has. You know, that's why I think the last year was so disruptive for so many people. Man, life in America was good. We've been economically prosperous. We've had access to technology and things that made it easy and just no problem. Smooth sailing. And, and what Calvin said is true. We promise ourselves this is how it's going to be. And we're just going to coast on. And then I guess at some point as Christians, we, you know, go through some kind of metamorphosis and boom, we're with Jesus. But boy, the emphasis on this life. We need to be shaken from our slumber and say, no, that's not how it is. And I and I praise God for the clarifying year, even if difficult year that we've had. Because it has. Wake up. Jesus is near. Life is short. There needs to be a sobriety about the way you think. This message is. Easier for people to receive in difficult times than it is in good times. Let me say that again. This message that the end of all things is near is easier for people in hard times to receive than it is in good times. Because in good times, turn it off. I don't want it to end. I I like where I'm at. I don't want to hear about anything else. This is I'm happy. I'm good but for people under pressure. And think about Peter's audience. They are being persecuted for their faith. It is easy for them. In fact, it is not only easier to hear that the end of all things is near, they are rejoicing in that. For to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And Lord, when can you get me out of this situation? I'm ready to go. How many of you thought that? Under trial. We all have. Heaven sounds sweeter all the time, as the old song says. When you've realized how bad this world is. But when we are married to and engrossed in this world, we have a hard time disengaging from it, even in our minds. Like spiritual junk mail, we just tend to toss verse 7 aside as interesting but irrelevant. Oh yeah, that's neat. File 13. That mentality will cause the absolute failure and forfeiture of spiritual things when things become difficult. We must realize that the end of all things is near and live our lives with a sense of brevity here as we look out at eternity. Brothers and sisters, look with brevity. Pray that God would give you a sense of brevity in this life. As Moses writes in Psalm 90, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Number your days. Don't panic when you do it, but live with a sense of sobriety and brevity as to this life so that you will apply wisdom, taking truth and living it out. Look upon eternity with a longing gaze, and this life with a short glance. As Hebert points out in his commentary, such a realization makes living for righteousness, even under great stress and persecution, much more doable in our thinking, because we realize it isn't forever. Hey, go home tonight, for those of you inclined to do it, turn on the news and say, this is just temporary. This isn't forever. This is only a moment and Christ is coming. Texting back and forth with Evan Burns, our missionary in Asia, who has lived in that culture for many years and gone through a lot of very difficult things there. And and he, he made a statement to me. We were talking about the persecution that's going on in Myanmar right now. Make, the media is not telling you this, but the absolute reality is that it is a genocide against Christians being perpetrated by the Communist Chinese Party. That's 100% of what's going on. They're not covering it that way, but that's what's happening. And these are people that Evan has devoted his life to and he loves intensely. And he said, I'm just so ready For Jesus to come and melt this place down. He said, I'm tired of the sin. I'm tired of the wickedness. I'm just so ready for Jesus to come and rule and to reign. You know, I was convicted. I don't feel like that every day. I don't think like that every day. But the end of all things is near and I should be and you should be as well. Peter's statement here needs to be kept objectively so in the broader framework of what he's doing. That the end is near and God's perfect judgment will be enacted. Christian, don't worry about discrimination and oppression here. God's perfect judgment has not been seen yet, but it will. So just rest in that. Secondly, the end is near and Christ's eternal reign in your life with Him and joy everlasting with Him is just around the corner. Don't fear what you're going through now. Some of you have had operations and you're you're in pain and you know you're going to go through more pain, but that more pain leads to something better on the other side once the problem is fixed, right? It's the same for us. We're going to go through some hardship, but don't worry because what's around the corner is better. It's eternal. It's lasting. Can't be taken away from us. And in both of these things, both God setting the record straight and Christ coming to, and bringing with him our eternal life. are the motivation for the hope that we are to give in chapter three, verse 15. That hope then motivates the believer to live a certain way. It ought to motivate you, Christian, to live in a certain way. It's the natural desire, the goal of Christians to live in a way that is both pleasing to God and preparatory for us to meet Him. That ought to be natural to the Christian. Now when Peter's writing this and he's speaking about the end of all things, It doesn't bring into focus a a definite sense of difficulty alone, but it also bears an immense sense of hope. There's going to be something new for us. I'm excited to leave this world just because it's so broken. Because God has something new and better planned for us. And so it's not just that there's a sense of difficulty in that saying that the end is near. There's a sense of hope in that something better awaits us. The church of Jesus Christ has always been exhorted to be ready for that day. Peter will say in his second letter, in chapter 3, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Uh, Hey, translation, be ready. It comes like a thief in the night. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 and For for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day will overtake you like a thief. Why? You've prepared your mind. You are ready for the coming of the Lord. You're ready for the end of times. The longer time moves forward, the more we are encouraged and exhorted to be ready not to become complacent romans 13 11, do this knowing the time that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep for now salvation is nearer than when you first believed that's just a reality your salvation the ultimate realization of being with christ you know it's nearer today christian than when you first believed hallelujah right The the promised life that we have so looked for. Be encouraged by that. Be hopeful in that. Yes, it's tinged with difficulty here, but it's so temporary. With a view toward that day, understanding the hope that is within us. We need to adapt the mentality of that hope and... Other points in Scripture, Titus 2.13, looking, eagerly looking. The Word has a, a sense of great anticipation like a child on Christmas Eve looking for that blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9:27 and 28, and as much as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Are you awake? Are you waiting? Are you looking? Peter says we must be. This is the the right posture for a believer. Peter moves from the reality of time drawn down to the second point this morning, and that is the resolutions for a time to come. First, there is the reality of time drawn down. Secondly, there is the resolution for time to come. And now he gives us, several statements in the following verses. It'll take us a few weeks to get through these all. But we'll begin this morning by looking at the last half of verses 7 down through verse 9. I, Howard Marshall, who's a respected commentator, as he observed and commented on these verses, said this, that the resolution for the Christian involves Christian living that orbits around two points. Number one is loyalty. And the other is love. First to God and then to each other. The the things that Peter is going to spell out in the coming verses revolve around those two realities. A reality of loyalty to God and others and a reality of love to God and to others. And without these two commitments, brothers and sisters, life at the end is not going to become difficult it's going to be impossible when peter says wake up the end of all things is near he is giving us the the steps to prepare ourselves to live in the end of time and if we do not heed that it is going to become not only difficult but impossible for christians to make it through we have the advantage of living it The time that we live because we can look back on the history of the church and say this has happened. We've seen microcosms of this throughout the history of the church and we've seen Christians actually apply this. And we've seen the church not only make it through, but make it through stronger. We've seen Christianity explode, not cultural Christianity, not convenient Christianity, biblical Christianity. And that is what is being promoted here and taught by Peter. I want to address, first of all, the devotion to God. Devotion to God. Peter begins his exhortation and his practical help to us by giving us two commands that anticipate That anticipate us laying a foundation that will endure regardless of what comes against us. The first foundation is simply this, and is one that he knows will serve us well. He says be of sound judgment. Be of sound judgment. Be of a sound mind, in other words. How are we going to make it through being of a sound mind? What does it mean? It means to be prudent. To focus on self-control. To be reasonable, to be sensible, to be serious-minded. To keep one's head. I love that one. To keep one's head. There's a not-so-proud moment in my life. In which something had transpired in our home. And great panic ensued. I don't even remember what it was. I know my wife probably does. And before I could think of seasoning my speech with grace. I made the statement. Get your head in the game. That was not well received. And it should not have been said. But that's what this word means. Think sensibly. Wake up. Get your head in the game. Keep your wits about you, man. Don't panic. Don't let them throw you off your game. The Christian life, brothers and sisters, is a thinking life. It's not an emotive, responsive life. It's a thinking life. If you look at so much of what goes around in the world today and where so many of the problems come from, do you know where they come from? Emotional response rather than well-thought-out plans. Have you noticed that? Everybody just responds. People don't think anymore. They go, well, how does it make me feel? And bang, It just explodes. It's nauseating. It's frustrating. But God didn't create it, create us as human beings to be that way, let alone Christians He gave us a mind and we are to use it. And so Peter says, be of a sober mind. Be a thinker. Keep your head about you. Ponder life with rational thinking that leads to Christian, stable, biblical, rational behavior. How are we going to endure the end of all things? Well, by being thinking people. Again, Marshall says this, keeping one's head despite the dangers and fears of the time. Fear and worry stimulated by persecution can easily lead to hasty and ill-conceived judgments. You you won't prepare when difficulty comes. You'll prepare beforehand, and that is what will get you through difficult times. I marvel with great gratitude and prayer for my fellow pastors in Canada. I read another uh, pastor's account last night that he sent out from Canada saying, tomorrow our church goes underground. We'll be meeting on farms. And he said, "If, if all the people come that have asked To come to our church because we have been meeting. And this isn't James Coast. This is another church. He said we will easily be four times the size we've been in the past. Because people are hungry. And yet in order to fulfill this there has to be a plan. They're not panicking. They're not in despair. They are going to observe. They're going to adapt. And they're going to overcome. So they're going to the fields. And they're going to preach. They're not losing their wits. Are they in difficult times? Yes. Is there a price to be paid if they're caught? Yes. But are they doing the right thing? Absolutely. But they can't do that if they're not thinking, if they're not making hastily conceived plans and judgments. And Peter says, keep your head about you. Be of sound judgment. Reason things out. Our our minds have to be hankered anchored on the hope to come and brothers and sisters there is hope coming if this world is all there is sure go ahead and panic but we know it's not right there is the blessed appearing and hope of our Lord Jesus Christ press on don't give up don't give in hope is in this life then a sound mind will not be possible this world offers nothing in the way of a reason to have a sound mind look at the craziness around you but Christian let's recall something together let's recall what we possess do you know what you have you know there are documentaries about this stuff. There are books about this stuff. The, the proper thing is real. It's a huge industry. You watch these TV shows and read these magazines and read these. Well, what do you have? Well, I've got, you know, 13 tons of dried pinto beans and, you know, 5,000 tubes of toothpaste and, you know, just all this stuff. But what do we as Christians have? Do you realize you have the promises of God proven in Jesus Christ? Christian, we have the God of creation who has made very real promises to us and granted those to us through the death and resurrection and ascension of His Son. You have that. You have The the Word of God to guide you. God didn't leave you as a child out in a wilderness with no clue how to survive. You have the Word of God, the instruction manual of heaven. Not only that, He gave you His Holy Spirit who indwells you, who guides you, who comforts you, who convicts you, who illumines you, who controls you. What else do you need? I think we have it all. When the world comes and says, hey, listen, if you'll just buy into our system, you can have it all. No thanks, we already do. We, We already possess those things. And God cannot fail. We have a sure hope. We have a storehouse of provisions in order to adapt and to form a mind that is under control. Don't panic. You have what you need. Focusing anywhere else will not produce such a mind. Depending upon anything else will not produce a mind that is sound of judgment. However, in Christ, with the help of the Holy Spirit, by the promises of God, we are able to govern our mind. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we are destroying, I love the words, Paul's so vivid. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking captive every thought to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Go Paul. He is of sober mind, of sound mind. Brothers and sisters, now is not the time to quit. Now is not the time... To compromise, now is not the time for us to doubt who we are, who our God is, and what we have. Now is not the time for us to panic. Now is not the time for us to retreat. Now is not the time to be discouraged. Now is the time to move forward. Because we have all that God knows that we need in His infinite wisdom, in His all-knowing, all-powerful, omnipresent, unchanging person. Be of sound mind. Notice what the second thing Peter says. Be of sound judgment and be sober in spirit for the purpose of prayer. Oh my. Using a very closely related term, Peter calls believers to a heightened sense, not only of clear thinking, of a calm mind, but of a spiritual alertness. To be spiritually alert. Next Saturday, I have the privilege of preaching at the first Master's Fellowship for our region. Saturday morning, I'll be preaching the first session from 2 Timothy 4-5, Be Sober. The theme of our conference being resolute. Be sober, be spiritually on high alert. That's not possible for a panicked mind to do panic mind is not a spiritual mind it's an unstable mind what is peter saying here he's he's telling you to be spiritually alert spiritually vibrant spiritually awake it's the opposite of a mind that is intoxicated by anything and unable to think clearly it's clear mind clear headed able to focus uniquely on spiritual things Can I remind you this morning, brothers and sisters, that while the word in its technical definition would refer to any type of chemical intoxication, it's possible for us to be intoxicated in many ways. Maybe not chemically, not physiologically, but spiritually and mentally, you can be intoxicated with a lot of things. You can be intoxicated with politics. You can be intoxicated with sports. You can be intoxicated with culture. You can be intoxicated with yourself. Peter says, Don't be intoxicated by anything. Don't be controlled with anything that prevents spiritual sobriety, spiritual focus, self controlled minds that focus and innately and naturally go to God. Again, let me ask you a question what intoxicates you? What person, what thing, what activity, what consumes your time? How would I know, Brian? How would I know? Because it just feels like I'm just in such a rut or I'm in such a carousel. I'm just going around and around. How do I know? How do I know? Well, what is left over in your regular day for devotion to God? I don't mean your 15 minutes in the morning or 20 minutes in the morning, but throughout the day, what leftovers is God getting? And then work backwards from there and, and ask why can he, well, I was busy doing this or I, I was worrying about this instead of praying. And I was, you know, you know, on social media engrossed in what's going on all around me more than I was in God. What, what's left over? And that's a that's a that's a scary Realization. It's a sad realization for us. It's one we wouldn't want to think about. When we lay our head on the pillow at the end of any given day, say, no, what was left over for the Lord today? Another way to look at this command is not only through the, the lens of intoxication, which is the meaning of the word, but it also has the sense of drowsiness. Just drowsy. Eyes half shut. And if anything is true (coughs) in American culture, it certainly seems to be that, doesn't it? That we are drowsy (coughs) in our ease and our comfort and all the things that we've been given that we count as blessings, they've made us drowsy. (coughs) We've been told that we can coast because after all, we live in a Christian nation. We can be comfortable. We can relax. We can be a little less on guard. Nothing could be further from the truth. We can't ever coast. We can't ever rely on a notion of a Christian nation, which I think we all see the fallacies of that now. There's nothing Christian about anything going on around us. Let me just... Diverge for a moment and illustrate this. I was telling Nicole last night, and I went to bed, I was very burdened about this. Christians, there's a new battlefront that's formed in the last couple of days. And you're going to have to think your way out of this one through Scripture. We have a candidate running for governor in the state of California, who espouses a politically conservative platform? Pro oil, pro fracking, pro constitution, pro republican, and yet is a man pretending to be a woman in love with another woman. Well, you know, you gotta vote for him because it's a platform. You gotta vote for him because, I mean, it's the lesser of two evils. You gotta vote. There comes a time when we have to think our way out of this and say, No. I've got I, I to quit being so spiritually drowsy and so comfortable in my surroundings. I've got to arouse to action biblically over every other thing, over every other comfort, over every other issue. You can't be drowsy, Christian. You can't coast. You've got to think, you've got to think biblically. Be aroused to spiritual action, spiritual sobriety in order to make it through what Peter says is the end of all things. Why? And I'll end with this. We won't make it all the way through. Peter says you are to be of sound judgment. You are to have a sober mind, a non-drowsy mind for the purpose of prayer oh boy don't you know Peter as he wrote this was so embarrassed maybe even mourning Because Peter knew what it was to be left by Jesus and told to watch and pray so that you don't enter into temptation. And yet when Jesus comes back, he finds Peter drowsy, unconcerned about praying, unconcerned about fellowship with the father. Peter says, you've got to do this so that you are not spiritually lulled to sleep, but rather you're acting like Jesus acted. I know, I didn't act like Jesus. Oh, how I wish I would have when He was here. I didn't, but I'm telling you, don't fall asleep like James and John and myself did. Be alert. What is prayer, brothers and sisters? What is prayer? It's conversation and it is fellowship. With the triune God. It's, it's placing ourselves in relationship with Him to have His mind and His heart and to learn from Him and to grow in Him. And Peter's saying, if you're drowsy, you won't do that. You'll just, you know, fall asleep or, oh, look, a rabbit. Oh, look. And be distracted. Peter says you've got to be sober. You've got to be awake and alert so that you can pray. This is what you need. Whether you know it or not, Christian, you're dependent on God. and Prayer is the way we express our acknowledgement of that and prayer is the way that we demonstrate that we are depending on God. A non-praying life is a proud life. It's a self-dependent life. It's I can do this without you, God, life. But a life of prayer is a life of saying, Father, I can't make it through today. Well, I can't make it through the next minute. Holy Spirit, I, I need your guidance. I need your correction. I need your comfort. I need your reminding me of Christ and who I am in Christ. I, I need you. Ah, I'm good don't need to pray. I sleep instead. I'm tired. I'm dulled. I'd rather indulge in this or that. I want you to notice something in the life of Jesus. Just think back through the Gospels with me. You can go uh, leaf your way through the four of them later. But as Jesus' time for crucifixion drew near, and as it chronologically gets closer as the Gospels progress, Do you know what we find being recorded more of Jesus in the latter days of his life? He prayed. Now we might think Jesus is about to die. Jesus needs to go preach. Jesus needs to go to the masses. Jesus needs to get busy about kingdom work. But Jesus, the closer he gets to the cross, says, no, I need to go talk to my father. I need to pull away from the distractions, yes, of even you disciples. So y'all stay here because you're just a bunch of trouble half the time. I'm going to talk to my father alone. And the closer we get to his crucifixion, the closer the end of all things gets for Jesus' earthly ministry, the more he wrestles in prayer, the more he is strengthened by prayer the more he commits to the plan of the Godhead in prayer to finish the mission, which, by the way, ends in our salvation. So how can we say that we can do without what God in the flesh could not do without? If Jesus had to pray as the end of all things approaches, brothers and sisters, what does that say about us mere mortals? discipline your mind, be of sound judgment and sober mind. Why? For the purpose of prayer. What would we do if we knew we were being crucified next week? Probably a lot of things, but prayer wouldn't be one of them. Jesus says, no, prayer has to be the one out of all of them. Reminded on a human level of Martin Luther, great reformer. Literally at, at his time in doing what he did was standing essentially alone against the entire world, which was controlled by the Roman Catholic Church. And as he stands up against Rome by himself, and he fights the battle for reclaiming uh, the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, as he as he translates the Bible into German as we've been learning in Sunday school into the language that people could read against all the world hating him for doing it. Luther said he had to pray more and more. And And someone once asked him because he would begin his morning every morning with two to three to four hours of prayer. And they would say, Dr. Luther, aren't you too busy to pray? And his response, I'm too busy not to pray. I have too much to do not to spend at least that much time in prayer. And his heart was that he needed to spend even more than he did. Were things difficult? Yeah, the Pope had put a bounty on his head. He was a marked man. Had he been found, he would have been killed. It wasn't because they didn't try. And yet, under that duress, Luther says, in a sober mind, And a fixed mind says, I need to go to the Father. And I need to pray. Brothers and sisters, how are we going to know if we're hitting the mark? How are we going to know whether we are living with sound judgment and sober spirit? We'll know when we pray more. We'll know more. When instead of having to always have something on the radio as we drive, we we can tolerate the quietness of a car ride just across town to speak with the Lord. We'll know when our first thought of the morning is, Father, I need to spend some time with you. I need to understand your word. I need to prayerfully pray through your word and read it and gain strength and wisdom and Encouragement from what's there. You'll know that the sobriety of mind, that the soundness of judgment is growing in you when you're praying. And it's not a kind of prayer that's rote and dutiful and perfunctory. It's a prayer that, man, I can't wait. So enjoy talking with my Heavenly Father. Communing with His Son and Holy Spirit. Constant prayer. Pray without ceasing, Paul says. It's not everything. You're just living in an attitude of dependence and fellowship with the Lord. May that be true of us. Let me say this. I know it's not true of all of us to the extent we wish it were. There's none of us who've arrived at this. We're all in a battle for this. Me, you, all of us. But it's something that God in His grace and mercy will help us with. Let's go to Him now and let's ask for that help.